All right, welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today joining me is Rory O'Connor, who is a professor of health psychology at the University of Glasgow, where he leads the Suicidal Behavior Research Laboratory. He is a world leader on suicide research and prevention and has been working in this area for 25 years. In January 2021, Rory became president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, and he is also a past president of the International Academy of Suicide Research. He has published extensively in the field of research and self-harm and has contributed to six BBC documentaries on suicide, including Suicide and Me with the rapper Professor Green and Our Silent Emergency with Roman Kemp. You can find him on Twitter. Rory, thank you for so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Leo. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And, and really cool shirt you got on too. <laughs> I try my best. I try. I try my best. Small things are important, and shirts are important to me. <laughs> well, you have a new book, and I'm so excited for this new book about regarding suicide because every time I feel like I watch a movie or TV show where somebody has ended their life. Uh, the, the only thing they mention is depression. And your book alludes to the fact that it's much more complex than that. Can, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think what I've tried to do with the book is, um, well, distill effectively 25 years of working in the field of suicide research and suicide prevention. But, and part of that distilling those 25 years is, is trying to dispel and sort of break down many of those myths which still exist today around suicide. And actually in the book, I, well, I talk about the complexity a lot, the, the complex set of factors that lead to suicide. And that although, although we recognize that in most Western countries, suicide happens in the context of mental illness, most commonly depression, Depression is not the reason why people take their own lives. And indeed, we know from the research that's about less than 5% of people who are treated for depression who will go on to take their own life. So for me, the question over the last 20 odd years is trying to better understand why it is that in the case of that 5%, why it is those 5% of people are more likely to take their own lives compared to the 95% who don't. And I suppose what I try to do with the book is take the reader through the, a range of different myths around suicide, as well as then yet yeah, talking about the sort of standard clinical type risk factors, but really focusing in on a model of suicide that I developed, the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model, or the IMV model for short. And the IMV model, at the heart of it, is trying to understand the emergence of suicidal thoughts in some, but also not just understand the emergence of suicidal thoughts, get a better handle on why it is our best guess is about 30% of people who think seriously about suicide will make that transition from thinking to acting on their thoughts to understand that transition. And in terms of the complexity, what I would argue is that the key, the thing which leads to the emergence of suicidal thinking is that people are trapped by mental pain. And the source of that mental pain can come from our past, from our present, and also from our concerns about the future. And so in, in terms of the IMV model, this sense of entrapment is often driven by feelings of defeat and humiliation, also loss and social rejection. And what we're trying to do, all of us who work in suicide research and suicide prevention is understand what are those factors that lead some people to feel defeated and humiliated and then for why it is that some people then are able to manage that sense of defeat and humiliation that they don't feel trapped by it but crucially trying to identify what is it about this sense of entrapment what leads to this sense of entrapment what's the rule for example of early life trauma What's the rule for trauma in everyday life and how that impacts on our biology, our psychology, and, our, and, and the broader, on how the broader social context really affects all of us. 
Because to my mind, and then I will let you get a word back in, Leo, I've been <laughs> going on a bit there. Um, but to, me, to my mind, we're trying to understand uh, the, the sense of, like, although there's this complex set of factors and mental illness is part of it, what we're trying to understand is how it impacts on, on an individual such that, that that person sees suicide as the solution to their pain. And as Ed Schneidman said many years ago, um, suicide is, is sadly a permanent solution to often temporary problems. So the model really, and in the book, I try and unpick that pathway to entrapment and that pathway from entrapment to suicidal thinking and to then suicidal acts. And in doing what I've tried to do with the book is bring together my research evidence, but also from my own personal lived experience of meeting many, many people, countless people over the last 25 years who've either been attempted suicide or thought about suicide themselves, taken part in some of our research, or been bereaved by suicide, and trying to bring that together with my own personal experience of suicidal loss and my own experience of my own mental health. And what I suppose I've tried to do is bring all that together in this journey in, in, my, in the book, which, which I hope and the feedback I've got thus far has been really warm and positive and helping people, any one of us better understand that complexity. Just getting back to where your question began, Leo, getting, helping people understand that complexity, but crucially help somebody who has maybe been suicidal themselves understand why they feel the way that they do. And crucially also help people who are supporting someone who's suicidal or to make sense of the pain, if you've, if you've had the tragedy of loss, suicidal loss, to understand that tragedy better. Thank you so much for sharing that, that passion. Uh, talk as much as you want. My guests have heard me, uh, or not my guests, but my listeners have heard me say uh, everything I, I have to say about suicide. So they're, they're so happy to hear a fresh voice uh, on a topic. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, you talk about the complexity of it and I'm, I'm reading this other book and it's talking about how it, it didn't start with you. Um, have you found there to be like a, um, a generational link to suicidality on some level? That's, that's an interesting question. So if we look at the suicide rates globally, if we're looking at sort of generational effects over time, we do know that overall, and over the last 30 years, broadly speaking, the, the global suicide rates have decreased. And that, um, and, but most of that decrease is accounted for by reductions in suicides in Asia. Because we know that the world's, the vast majority, 79% of the world's suicides happen, obviously in low middle income countries, 60% in Asia. So it's been interesting looking at that over the last 30 years, looking at that, that reduction. Now, that's a slightly, so if we're trying to understand that, is that a cohort effect? Like, is it a generational effect or is it something different? Now, part of that, I think that reduction has been, I think, linked to, uh, especially in Asian countries, restricting access to really lethal means of suicide. So that's part of the explanation for why there's been a decrease. Um, but also, I think, increase awareness around mental health as part of, I think, and hopefully people are more likely to get better help. But if we look at, the, going back to the point about the sort of generational effects, when I started out in this field in the mid-1990s, in the UK, young people were, the, were most likely to kill themselves. They were the leading, the biggest demographic of people ending their life. And then, but what we've seen is that that suicide risk over the last 20 years has been carried with that same group. So now in the UK, the group of people who are most likely to take their own lives are middle-aged men. So for me, that's a really interesting question, which is why is it that that risk seems to be carried with them from, in the case in the UK, and I think it was similar data in the United States at the time, is that young men were the biggest risk group but prior to young men being the biggest risk group, it was elderly men. So there seems to be this cycle of we, we carry risk with this. And so, but my concern at the minute, though, is that what we started to see in terms of signals of suicide rates increasing. So in the United States, in the UK and in Australia, for example, three countries, 
three high-income countries, the suicide rates over the last few years have been on the increase. Now, I know in the, in, in the US, you've just witnessed there seems to be a bit of a decrease last year, which is great news. But if we look over the last number of years, the United States, Australia, and the UK have witnessed increases in suicides. And if you then dig down into the rates, there seems to be an increase amongst young people again. So my concern is, are we now seeing again what I witnessed when I first got in the field in the mid-1990s, when it was young people who were most at risk? So are we now going to see this cycle then of the middle-aged people like me now, we will carry our risk and we will continue to have an increased risk of suicide and as we go into our older adult years. But sadly, coming up behind it is this cycle of young people becoming vulnerable again and increasing risk, risk of suicide. And then the question is, well, why is that? And, and I don't know if we really know for certain why this cycle appears to happen. Now, the one thing, if we look in a sort of macro level, that, that my generation had was, my generation, when I was a young person, we'd just gone through a recession, an economic recession. And we know economic recessions are associated with suicide risk. And my concern now is with, we've just gone through, and 10 years ago, or more than 10 years ago, we went through another global recession. And, we, and, and there is evidence that, that, that the suicide rates, although they've decreased overall in the last 30 years, we know that the suicide rates, the excess deaths, we think accounted for by suicide, were in the thousands after the last recession. Now, my fear now is that with COVID-19, although the good news is thus far, mostly the data is from high-income countries, but if we look at the first six months of the pandemic, there wasn't, in, in high-income countries, there was no evidence of an increase in suicide. And that's great. That's really, really encouraging. But that might be because at the height of the storm of COVID-19, there was a great sense of social cohesion and community togetherness. And there was lots of social and economic things put in place. So in the UK, we had this, what's known as a furlough scheme, which was this economic safety net so that people would stay at home and still receive money. Now, my concern is, as we now exit COVID-19, hopefully, and I do appreciate that, we are fortunate in our countries, in the UK and the United States, it looks as if we were through the worst, we hope. But in other countries and across the globe, if we look to Brazil or India, they're still in the eye of the storm of thousands of people at risk or get being affected and countless people dying every day still. So we need to be cautious. But, but my broad point is, my concern about this generational effect is if we're going to have this whole group of people, and I'm particularly concerned about young people, because although the suicide rates haven't increased yet, we know that pre-pandemic, there was evidence of young people increasingly dying by suicide, and that inequality is going to be exacerbated even further as we exit the pandemic. And, and, that's, and my fear is that we need to do so much, we need to be so vigilant, ensure we're supporting economically and socially those who are most vulnerable, so we don't have this situation in which we have growing numbers of anybody, but growing numbers of young people dying by suicide as we move into the next five and 10 years and recover from this global pandemic. You know, what you say resonates with me because, uh, you know, when I was nine years old, I told my mom when I turned 40, I was going to end my life. And I, you know, when I look back, I couldn't figure out why I said such a thing. And but as I got older, I realized that even at the age of nine, I felt like an economic burden to my mother. And I'm like, wow, at the age of nine, I, I sensed that, you know, I had this sense that if my mom didn't have me or my sister, we would be, my mom would be better off financially and she could do so much more with her life. And I, I think, I wonder if we're underestimating like kids' perception of the world around them and, and, the, and the finances around them. Because at the age of nine, I, I, I didn't know anything about money but I, I understood the, or at least I felt the weight of my presence financially. And, and so to this day, I still kind of walk the earth with this 
sense of, you know, not wanting to be a burden. Um, have you found that in any of your research, like young kids um, discussing that or sharing that? And I could see how that could be linked to pre post pandemic uh, suicide increases where kids are like, wow, our family's really struggling and there's, there's no food on the table. Yeah, well, we, we haven't looked at that directly, um, Leo, but the first thing to say is um, it, it's great that you're still here and that, um, uh, and that, 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 and we know from all the research that obviously that sense of burdensomeness that obviously Thomas Joyner talks um, eloquently about, we know that's at the heart of, um, I would argue, that it's sort of contributing to that mental pain that people are tra feel trapped by. Um, we haven't looked at that, we haven't looked at it directly, that sense of burdensomeness directly with that age group. But we do know, we do know from the data, so we're, I'm leading a, what's known as the UK COVID-19 mental health and well-being study. And since the start of the pandemic, we've been monitoring people's mental health and well-being. Um, at, now, these are adults, not young, we're not looking at young people specifically, but we're looking at people 18 and over. And although we don't, we're not assessing burdensomeness, we do know that our, the young people, the young people aged 18 to 29, are reporting the highest levels of feeling defeated, the highest levels of feeling trapped. And there's a link with financial insecurity um, to link to that. So although we haven't looked at it directly, I think intuitively what you're suggesting makes sense, and it's a concern, is that we could have this whole generation who will be witnessing, because when, when, the, the, when the jobs market is really, really flat at them. And I know it's growing on one level, but it's growing from a base, which is um, people are like frightened about losing their jobs even more day in and day out. And even people who are keeping their jobs are maybe working zero hours contracts or not the hours they were previously. So they're still in financial hardship. And yeah, we should never forget that that environment of a child growing up, those financial concerns, I mean, a child will absorb these things. And what we need to do is making sure we are protecting and supporting families so that families can look after their kids the best that they can and give people the best chance in life. Because we know that, just not from the pandemic-specific data, but there's loads of data out there that early childhood traumas of a whole range of natures, I mean, we, we know they can affect gene expression, we know they can affect the cortisol system. We know they can affect our sense of attachment and relationship building. So yeah, flag is a really important observation. And it's something that we, we need to be doing as much as we can to really look at which young people have been struggling during the pandemic. And, with their, and it's been exacerbated by the financial and economic circumstances of their family unit, whatever that may be. But, it, but I suppose it's also worth highlighting, though, that Despite the fact that we know that suicidal thoughts, certainly certain suicidal thoughts and suicidal suicide attempts and self-harm seem to have increased during the pandemic. And there's a recent meta-analysis published there um, by colleagues in Canada um, a few weeks ago, and that supports that. So although there hasn't been this increase in suicide, there is evidence that suicidal thoughts increased, and that's supported by our, our and suicide attempts. And we certainly have seen that with our UK data as well. But we also need to ask ourselves, what can we learn about the... I mean, we now live in this new world that none of us could have envisaged in 2019. And can we harness some goodness out of the pandemic? Can we understand that for some people, that this new form of living was actually protective for them? And that there was a sense of resilience. So for me, when we reflect on this really bizarre two years of our lives, hopefully it's no more than that. I hope we can learn lessons which we can then translate into programs, methods, ways in which we can protect the most vulnerable. And a group we haven't mentioned yet, actually, there's a number of groups from our research and others which we know are vulnerable during the pandemic. We know people of color are vulnerable. We know that people with pre-existing mental health problems are vulnerable. We know that women are vulnerable, and we know, I've already said, young people, but also people from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds. And my concern is, if we look at the intersection of all of those, 
I think that's where we, we, we could have this, this next concern, which is the mental health of people who are, are intersectioning across all those groups. I mean, they are particularly vulnerable. I mean, need to all of us do more to ensure that our lawmakers prioritize mental health, but all of us at the community level, at the individual level, we all do whatever we can to help each one of us feel more connected with each other and have a sense of compassion for our neighbor as well as compassion for ourselves as we navigate these tricky times ahead. Yeah, if you could wave a magic wand, because uh, I've read somewhere you talked about, you know, the schools being involved and in doing a better job of teaching kids coping skills and, and resilience. What, what, what would be one of those tools that you would implement in, into our educational system to help kids become more resilient or uh, improve their coping skills? Just a small, easy question there, Leo. Um, um, I suppose that one of the things I think is at the heart of, um, if we just focus on young people and the role of schools is, at that early stage when we're building our identity, um, and, and, and it's really difficult to build a, 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 an identity if you're building it on, on, a, on sand and, or on rocky ground, and, you, and maybe you've had a more difficult start in, in life. And, and we now live in a world which is all about comparing ourselves to others. And although I don't buy into the rhetoric about social media being all bad, I think social media is good, but we now live in a world which, for good or ill, that's part of our landscape. And we know our self-esteem is often in part determined by how we can present ourselves. And, we've, and if I was to wave a magic wand, and although social media is only a small part of the puzzle, of understanding suicide risk or suicide prevention, if you can harness it for the good, is that if we could, if my magic wand would, would be if it's some way in which we could help people, young people, especially we know at adolescent age, when, those, when you're going through puberty or just going through puberty and you're really trying to make sense of who you are and understand your emotional, what you're, how you're feeling and your capacity to manage those feelings, the magic wand would be that in those really critical times when we, when we know that our young people are so, so sensitive to social rejection and social failure, which impacts on their develop and development of sense of self, my magic wand would be that we could do something that our young people don't feel as affected by the sort of bows and arrows of social rejection in particular, or of all those challenges of growing up as an adolescent. Because of course it's an important time because that's when we are finding out who we are. But I, my fear is that we sh we're not doing enough about that. We're not being compassionate enough about ourselves of, the, of accepting that actually nobody's perfect and nobody expects you to be perfect. But similarly, we know that we've all, well, we've all been through our adolescent years and there are difficult times, really difficult times, and if there's some way in which we can have a thicker skin, my magic wand would be to give everybody a thicker skin so they can get through that difficult period unscathed. Um, and, and then we're all better prepared to navigate the rest of our lives. You know, one of the, the best tips uh, or advice I got from someone was to read biographies. And it helps me so much because, you know, I, I get looped into thinking, other people's lives are perfect also because of social media and, and people are always showing the best parts of themselves. And when I read the biographies of, of people who have passed away, uh, you get a full spectrum of their life and you get to see all the challenges and hurdles and obstacles and self doubts, you know, from Lincoln to Churchill to Coco Chanel to, to all these different people who have achieved great things. But you saw that the, uh, there, there was pain involved and there were sacrifices made and, uh, and, uh, um, and they struggled internally and externally. And it is kind of made me feel more connected in that. Um, but I don't read bios of people who are still alive because they, they tend to write theirs in a more positive light. And, uh, and I, need to full, I need to see the full spectrum of life, but we don't get that with social media. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And actually, I've never thought about the Bi biographies of people who are living versus people who have died and I suppose you're right actually when I reflect on 
I'm just thinking the recent, I mean, I've read a lot of JFK biographies. I've read a lot of um, all our politicians and, um, and exactly everybody, the, the, nobody gets through life scot-free. And, 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 but you're right, and we now live in this age in which it's much easier to present yourself as living this idealistic world. But I suppose, and so that's really important. I mean, I, I'm not saying we need to get rid of suffering, because I think some form of suffering um, makes us who we are, and, and that's how we grow and learn. But it's having some level which is acceptable. Um, and, but also, exactly, is it we all have ups and downs in life, and, and who we are as people is a consequence of those ups and downs. And um, yeah, no, I guess that's a great point, Leo, great point. Yeah, there's this, uh, I know it's part of your uh, IMV um, model that you, one of the questions you ask is uh, in regards to future thinking. Uh, can you speak more to that and how that's related to uh, suicidality? Yeah, so um, building on work that um, a colleague, Andrew McLeod, who's a clinical psychologist in London, he developed this task, which was, he asked people just under controlled conditions to tell them what they were looking forward to over the next week, the next year, and the next five to 10 years. And then he did this, the same about what you were concerned about. So the concerns were what he described as negative future thoughts. And what, what you were looking forward to were positive future thoughts. And he did a couple of early studies and he, he, he compared people who previously attempted suicide or self-harmed with either people who were depressed but had never been suicidal or controlled, people who had never been suicidal or depressed at all. And what was really, really interesting was just by asking those questions, tapping into those future thoughts, he was able to distinguish people who were suicidal from those who weren't. And the really interesting finding that he came up with in the, the late 1990s, early 2000s was that the difference between people who are suicidal and not is that they cannot generate positive future thoughts. They generate fewer of those. That, whereas there's no difference in negative expectations. So the point is that comparing someone who's suicidal from not suicidal, it's not that they're overwhelmed with negativity when they think about the future. But in, effect, but in essence, it's you can't generate these positive future thoughts, which resonates with Marshall Lenahan's work on reasons for living. So in essence, these because these future thoughts tend to be just small things like I want, I'm going to go to the cinema or I'm going to meet my friends. But it's, it's small things for a reason to get up in the morning, give you a sense of purpose. And that means so that and so we've done some work extending that. So in general, having these positive future thoughts we have then since found are protective. However, in one study we did a couple of years ago with a, a sample of people who had attempted suicide, we found this really intriguing effect. And although we did find that people, in, in, in a sample of people who had attempted suicide, if we saw them in hospital immediately after the suicide attempt and we assessed their future thoughts, those people who had more positive future thoughts were more likely to be less suicidal. They were, would have re better recovered in, in over the next 12 months to a year, or 12 months to 15 months, a year to 15 months. However, this is where the intriguing bit was. We found that people whose positive future thoughts were, were to do with things about themselves, right? So what we described as intrapersonal future thoughts. They're things like, I want to get better. I, I, I want not to be depressed. I want to be more self-confident. And our sample, people who had lots of those expectations or future thoughts, they were worse off over time. So although they were, these were positive thoughts, our concern, and the reason we think that they were worse off over time was because maybe what happened over time is if, if your expectation is, I want to be more confident or I want to be a better self-esteem, but then over time, that doesn't happen. All that that does then, in my mind, is that contributes to that sense of failure, that contributes to that sense of entrapment, and that's a bad thing. So, then, so the positive thinking stuff is really interesting because, yes, and overall, having these positive future thoughts seem to be really important in keeping us all alive. But we need to have future thoughts which are achievable, 
and uh, unrealistic. And so if we have future thoughts which are unrealistic, what we need to do is think about, well, actually, let's think about different things that we can be looking forward to, different things to keep us alive. But the last point I'll say on this is what's been really interesting, and when we've done this research on these, just simply asking people these questions about future thoughts are, when we statistically account for depression, how depressed they are, or how suicidal they were in the past, these positive future thoughts seem to be doing something different. It's not just that, oh, it's, it's people who are more depressed have fear, have less future thoughts. It's more than that. And I suppose my last point on this is in terms of therapeutic interventions, what we should be trying to do then are identify these positive future thoughts and then work with somebody to try and achieve them. And by working with somebody in a sort of cognitive behavioral therapeutic way, perhaps, that can again contribute into protection and reduction in suicide risk. Wow, that really highlights so much for me right now. Um, I don't even know where to start. I'm excited about everything you just said. Uh, because I remember reading in, uh, I think it was Alex Korb's book, is uh, one of his four questions for depression is, what are you looking forward to? Like, what did I do to make myself happy? Uh, what was my biggest challenge? And uh, how did I find meaning? And what am I looking forward to? And I've, I personally have struggled with answering that question some days. And, and I love that you said it doesn't have to be a major thing. It doesn't have to be a, a birthday or graduation, something as small as a movie or, you know, uh, hanging out with friends and going to a coffee shop, any little thing. And, and the fact that um, if it's internally, uh, you know, regarding like your personality or something that maybe you don't have as much control over is maybe it's not achievable or realistic as you said um that that can backfire on you uh focusing on that as uh as something to look forward to one thing i have noticed rory is i get a massage uh once a week and i found that getting a massage expands my future thinking it becomes grander it becomes broader it becomes uh, five uh, years down a road, 10 years down a road. And I started going back to get them. It reinforces me getting a massage because I'm so aware of the effect it has on my mind versus when I'm binge eating or, or doing something mindless, right? Because I know you talk, also talk about mindfulness. Uh, I, my thoughts become much more contracted. And I, I don't know if you've, uh, and because I know earlier, I, I'm, I'm going on a kind of a, a rant here, but um, <laughs> you also brought up cortisol levels earlier <laughs> and how that can affect uh, how we're able to cope with mental pain. So have you found some research on, you know, body work, touch and a reduction of cortisol levels and uh, and that ability to look into the future? I, I know that was a complicated question. But I think you understand. I think it was a complicated question, Leo. I think I got it. Um, we, haven't, we haven't done any work on it, but I think there is work on the, the importance of touch and then obviously um, the, uh, the, then how they can be obviously associated with the release of oxytocin, I assume it will be, and then obviously that has a soothing effect. I haven't, I haven't seen any studies looking at that directly then on, on how it may be associated with future thinking. But actually, it stands to reason that may be possible. So I think anything which promotes um, or deactivates, arguably, the sort of fight or flight system, because um, or when we can then feel protected, I think can be a good thing. Because because um, one of the things we do know from the research on cortisol is that people who attempt suicide tend to report this depletion or this blunted, um, certainly in, in older life this blunted cortisol response. And the reason we think that is, is because people who attempt suicide or die by suicide tend to experience a disproportionate number of negative life events. So it's as if the body's always on standby, always on threat. And that repeated exposure to stressors or threats, basically the cortisol system, the HPA axis obviously breaks down, or it seems to break down. And then the concern is, if, if when 
if we're releasing less cortisol, if we're releasing less cortisol, we're less prepared to fight the next day, so to speak, or the next stressor. And certainly we've, we've done work with, I have an identical twin brother, Daryl, who's a stress researcher, and we've done some work together in which we have shown that if you look at, if you, in a laboratory setting, if you bring people into our lab um, and you do a stress induction, and if you compare people who have never been suicidal to people who think about suicide and then those who have attempted suicide in the past, and we do this stress challenge. So we induce stress, which we know activates the cortisol system. What we find in our studies is that people who've attempted suicide release the least cortisol. So that's good evidence that on the psychophysiological level that people have attempted suicide, there certainly seems to be some dysregulation of the cortisol system. But also, we've also shown that the amount of cortisol that people release in our lab is also related to how much trauma they tell us they've experienced as children. And so that, again, is really important when we think about the sort of lifespan perspective when we're understanding suicidal risk, is that things that could ha happen in our childhood can confer vulnerability. It's never an inevitability, but vulnerability to suicide risk. So then the flip side of that, go back to your question, is this anything which can basically promote or activate the soothing systems within the body, hopefully will help with cognition, the way we think, and also hopefully help us regulate our emotions and thereby decrease the likelihood that we'll experience the mental pain that drives suicidal behavior. I, I love that. And to backtrack a little bit, it sounds like, because uh, I know that there's so many people who are afraid to ask a friend or somebody that they might fear um, uh, will uh, complete suicide uh, to ask them directly. And so maybe an entry question is, what are you looking forward to as a way of, of building that up? But, you know, in your book, you talk about how asking doesn't make a person uh, actually complete suicide. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things, again, I was trying to do with the book was trying to empower people to um, ask these difficult questions, ask somebody whether they're suicidal. And, and, and again, I understand people's concerns about doing that because it's a frightening thing to do, to ask somebody directly, a family member or a friend or a work colleague, are you thinking of ending your life? And obviously what I touch on in the book is, if you look at the research evidence, there's no evidence at all that asking that question plants the idea in somebody's head. Because I actually find the opposite sometimes, which is it can be the start of a life-saving conversation and get somebody the help and support that they may need. So my message would be, yeah, you could incorporate that in terms of having a future thinking type question, but I would always just be direct. And, um, and as long as you're direct, you're direct and ask so in a way which is compassionate, non-judgmental, and you don't respond with shock or with horror, um, you're not going to do any harm. And, and, and most of the people I've seen either ask that question of or no others have asked that question. Usually, the person who's been the recipient of the question, the person who then was in distress, they feel often a sense of relief. A sense of there's a bur actually a burden has lifted because they've shared this thought that often people feel quite shaming about having thoughts of suicide. They think are shameful, and so so for my mind is I'm always and I'm really trying to propagate this message as much as I can. If you are concerned about a loved one or or a friend, please just ask directly, and I give other tips in the book about how, how you might want to do that. And, and then just ways and sort of tips on asking questions in a, in a sort of open way, which is really engaging the person. Because the last thing I'll say about asking the question is, if in your mind's eye, you want that question, the answer to that difficult question to be no, the answer to that question will be no. Because we all, we, we all have a sense, we know, if somebody's asking us a question just for the sake of asking it or whether they really want to know the answer. And actually, I did a, one of the documentaries, the BBC documentaries, um, 
was what you mentioned at the start, Leo. And there's a bit where the the documentary meets the presenter, a guy, a DJ called Roman Kemp. He meets a group of young people, and they talk about always asking twice. And this idea that if you ask, oh, are you okay? It's just as a sort of entry question. When we're all asked that question, it's dead easy to say, yeah, I'm fine. It's much more difficult to dismiss that question if you're asked a second time, like, are you really okay? So, so again, so my message is always ask directly, be compassionate, be human, um, and, and, and maybe always ask twice if, if, if in doubt. I love that. It's true because even if somebody asks me how I'm doing, I'm like, you don't really care. But if they were asking me again, no, how are you really doing? Then I'm like, oh, okay, you're locked in and you really yeah. care and you're ready to listen. Um, you know, I've also uh, read somewhere that, you know, in 2016, you yourself uh, started therapy, individual therapy, and went into therapy. And uh, one of the things you mentioned was that men uh you know i think you were in your 40s i don't know if you're still in your 40s right now but i'm still in my 40s still i'm still a young 40s. man all right uh that we we tend to lose our emotional network now i i've heard of we you know people losing their network but you said emotional network can you can you talk more about that and what and perhaps what led you to to seek out individual therapy yeah no i talk about this in the book as well and um and so, yeah, so, so when I was, I, was, I was 42 and, it, yeah, it was 2016, and I just, um, I just wasn't in a good place at all emotionally. And I, um, I had an incredible sense of emptiness and uh, not really, I really felt really incredibly low and lonely, despite being, having family and friends around me. And, yeah, and so I, and, I've always been a pretty self-sufficient individual. Like um, I'll sort myself out, I'll look after my own well-being. I don't really need help. And I suppose for the first time in my life, I just found it, I just felt really overwhelmed emotionally and then really had this sense of unbearable emptiness. And and so then I did reach out and uh, and and I whatever now undertake whatever weekly psychoanalytics, psychotherapy, and, and I suppose that was in part to do with that emptiness, but also dealing with my own bereavements. Um, my first, just even my father who died very suddenly when I was in my early, tw early 20s, and then just my own sort of bereavement to suicide. And also just repeatedly having, having 25 years, I suppose, of, or that stage, 21 years of working in the field. Um, so, so yeah, and I find that incredibly, incredibly helpful and has really helped me make sense of who I am, except as I was talking earlier about um, the importance of self-compassion. It's helped me be a much more self-compassionate individual or self-compassionate toward obviously myself, as the word suggests, and more accepting of my own feelings and my own whatever life, whatever um, issues. And... Yeah, so I really I suppose the reason for putting that in the book was really to hopefully to encourage others because there still is certainly in my country stigma around going to therapy and especially I think more so as a man and so I was so so I thought it was important to do that and it also fit it with this idea that I was trying to be authentic because in the book I talk about other people's stories other people's lives so it would have been a bit odd if I didn't talk about my own because I bring my own experience of my own life to my work every day. But then on your second point about the emotional network stuff, yeah, because there's work which has shown that one of the reasons we try and understand why there's been this increase in middle-aged uh, male suicide by middle-aged men, part of the explanation we think is that men we know tend to have much smaller social networks anyway than women, um, and they often will have invested their emotional support in a life partner, and so then when that or in on occasions where then that relationship breaks down and we know that in this in the uk and i think it's similar figures in the us about 50 percent of all first marriages end in divorce and um, so then the, so we may have this situation which are as a middle-aged man much more socially isolated and emotionally isolated because your networks were smaller to begin with but a lot of your social support was bound up on this one person or even or a smaller number of people and I suppose so 
Um, so, so I think that was that's an important message that when we think about trying to then intervene and support, we need to look at that. There seems to be this gap or a void in support that men then are particularly vulnerable when this, whether this loss, this huge loss, obviously of a relationship, maybe the most important relationship in their life happens. I love that. And thank you for sharing that. You know, and it, it, you talked about, you know, men going to the therapy and, you know, there's still a stigma around that and, and asking for help. And at the beginning, we were talking about the feelings of entrapment. And I wonder how many men feel entrapped by um, the, the roles of, I, of being a man and, and what masculinity is and what, you know, in terms of what society has put out there. Can you speak to that? I see you nodding your head. Yeah, no, absolutely, Leo. I think that's at the heart of it, is it? So when I think about entrapment in the context of suicide risk, I think of entrapment at all levels. You can be trapped by mental pain, which is this individual level entrapment. But then if you move out, if you move sort of ripples out from that, absolutely, I think what we need to really challenge are these traditional male roles of what is to be a man, what masculinity is, what how masculinity is defined and what um, what determines successful masculinity, whatever on earth that is. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think that part of that not reaching out, that help-seeking thing is bound up with that. And that men are much more likely to use drugs and alcohol to manage their emotions than they are um, to reach out for emotional support in the way that women perhaps do. So I think, again, when we think about going back to this point about schools, which we mentioned a wee while ago, that's why it's so important that when we're in these, when we, what we have embedded throughout the curriculum, from the minute a child is born, I would argue, but certainly in whatever, the first days of school, the first years of school and all through schooling, we need to be ensuring that the message is actually reaching out is a sense is a sign of strength, not weakness, and that that sense of what it is to be a man, what the characteristics of masculinity should be, hopefully about caring, about being generous, about being trustworthy, about as well as these other things that people a bit more of a masculinity is defined about. So it's trying to really re rethink that so that we live in a world which we promote the next generation grows up with these incredible skills, these incredible sense of resilience, this emotional resilience, which is born out of an understanding of your own sense of vulnerability, an understanding that every one of us has vulnerabilities, and, and that actually identifying those and then reaching out or supporting, reaching in or reaching out, depending, depending what you do, um, that that sense of reaching out will hopefully make you a stronger person and that masculinity shouldn't be defined by these basically notions from generations past. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of leaning into that curiosity of, of who you want to be and who you are and, and how your perception and perceptions and values are have been created by other people and uh, taking that time to reflect on what exactly you uh, value. Because we see that with women also. Of uh, I have a friend who just got a divorce and um, she said she felt trapped in the marriage because he wanted her in the role of, of housewife and she tried it and uh, she just feel uh, parts of her soul just leaving her day by day. So uh, I can't imagine, uh, you know, in other countries where there's like a caste system and, um, you know, you're just kind of forced into marriage um, in those situations, that feeling of entrapment showing up again. Uh, Rory, is there anything that we haven't discussed that uh, and I know there's so much more in your book when, when it is dark, darkest um, available in the UK. I, I, you can't quite get it over here yet, right? No, you can get it. You can. So, um, so it is available on, because I just asked Twitter, which tells me all the answers to my questions. And according to my US colleagues on Twitter, you can get it, you can order it on, on Amazon as normal. And, and then it might, it might take a week to arrive. But, but certainly I've had lots of people in the United States who, who've got it on, on hard copy. And you can also buy it from the book depository. So Amazon book depository, Blackwell's in the United States also. Those, I know those three, certainly. So 
please, please buy it. Um, my heart and soul has gone into it. And, and I hope people find it helpful. No, because I'll just say the only thing you just asked anything else to say. I suppose the only other thing just to note is um, it's written, the book is written for a wide audience. So um, certainly the, the feedback I've had thus far is it doesn't matter if you're an academic, a clinician, somebody who's no experience of academia or clinical practice, but somebody who's just interested in suicide more generally, as well as people who have lost loved ones or people who have attempted suicide or been suicidal. All of those people have come back to me and said, the book is really accessible, it's compassionate, it brings together the evidence, the practice, but in a way that every one of us can maybe take something from the book as we all move forward, hopefully working collectively to do our bits, no matter how small, to make somebody else feel more connected and hopefully to prevent suicide. Love it. And last question that I ask of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Rory? What I would say is, well, first of all, please don't. And the reason I would say please don't is because we know that suicidal thoughts wax and wane. That suicidal desire comes and goes in waves of intensity. And we know that if we can keep ourselves safe in that moment and get through that window of risk, that things will get better and that suicidal thoughts are not permanent. And then the last thing I would say is, I've come across so many people who in the depth of the most awful depressive episode or the most awful suicidal crisis had thought that they would never feel worthy, never feel a sense of purpose in life. And I've come across so many of those people who I've met them years later and they've recovered and are living full and absolutely fulfilled lives. And they're so pleased that they're still here because no matter what you think in that moment of crisis, somebody needs you in this world. So please, please hold on. You are worth it. I love it. And we'll link to the book and, and Roy's uh, Twitter information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Roy, for joining me. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 1-800-SUICIDE, 1-800-273-TALK. Or if you're in Ireland, Glasgow, uh, Dublin, if you're in Sri Lanka, there are international suicide hotline numbers in in all of the show notes no matter what country you're in there's a hotline for you to call there's a talk there's a text there's a chat there's someone available for you right now you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly let's get to tomorrow together thank you so much rory thanks again leo had a, had a blast that was really really interesting thanks for your conversation <laughs>